welcome to Dr. M's Women and Children First podcast. I am your host, Dr. M. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with my good friend, Dr. George Munoz. George and I met back in 2006 at the University of Arizona's Center for Integrative Medicine when we began a fellowship studying under Dr. Andrew Weil what was known at that time and today as integrative medicine. It was a new field to both of us back in 2006, but George had a lot more of the Eastern philosophy in his uh, background than I did, so I learned a lot from him in those early years. George, from his CV, has been educated at some of the premier institutions in the country. He obtained his BA from Columbia in New York City in 1976. He went on to get his Doctor of Medicine at Mount Sinai School of Medicine in New York as well in 1980. He went on to do a clinical fellowship in rheumatology and immunology at Harvard Medical School affiliates at the Brigham and Wilmans Hospital Beth Israel in Boston. After his training, he moved to Florida where he has been practicing medicine ever since. He has a long list of academic affiliations and jobs. He's team physician for the University of Miami Hurricanes football, basketball, and athletic teams up until 2011, then switching to team physician for Florida International University, Panthers football, and all athletic teams. But aside from his academic qualifications, George is a world-class Renaissance-type guy. He has been all over the world looking at traditional and indigenous healing arts. As a Harvard-trained rheumatologist, he then went on to the jungles of the Amazon and the untamed Andes to learn about Peruvian, Ecuadorian, and other shamanic healing approaches to health, looking at what's going on inside the body from other avenues, Uh, looking at energy medicine, trying to understand the basis, the medical anthropology behind disease sets, how they start. He speaks nationally on all topics of nutrition, inflammation, and arthritis, and is also the author of Integrative Men's Health, which is a textbook on men's health in the Dr. Andrew Weil Integrative Medicine series of textbooks. So it's clear that Dr. Munoz comes to the table with lots of information from a rheumatologic and immunologic perspective. But he also has the anthropologic perspective and the integrative medicine perspective, all of which help to fine tune a really interesting narrative around COVID, which is one of the reasons I wanted to speak with him today. We're gonna take a look at COVID from an immunology, rheumatology perspective. What can we do as a society to reduce our risk moving forward with whether it's SARS-2 COVID or some other infectious disease that becomes a thorn in our side. And Dr. Munoz, with all of his many, many, many years of experience, has some news to use information for us on what the, the pathway can be moving forward in the future. When we finished our fellowship together, George was elected by the class to be our valedictorian speaker. And I could tell you that there was no one in our class that personified more what it was like to be a 
great healer, thinker, and just generally good human. And so today I'm going to take you on a tour with George, the amazing person that he is, of what we can do moving forward in the future to reduce the risk of death from disease. Well, good morning, Dr. George Munoz from the beautiful sunny state of Florida. It is an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. My friend, it's been far too long, but I love having you here. So welcome. Thank you, Chris. It's a privilege and a pleasure, A, to see you, spend some time with you, talk with you, and banter about uh, common interests that are important for our patients' health and their lives. I love it. I love it. So I'm going to get us started with our, we're going to discuss immunology today, since you are the expert in this field and specifically around COVID and what we can do from lifestyle perspectives to make our future brighter, whether it's COVID or the next pandemic. So I'm going to start with a little bit of uh, a piece that I wrote a while ago. So SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, is now known to be an infectious disease with features of a human disease that span the spectrum from asymptomatic to profoundly dysregulate immune system responses, which can lead to both aggressive inflammation and autoimmunity in the moderately to severely affected people. It is now very clear that the vast majority of these significantly affected individuals have a high burden of antecedent systemic inflammation in the form of chronic diseases of aging and or poor lifestyle choices that predispose the immune system to poor pathogen killing and then dysregulate inflammation, often with autoreactive features. The poor early innate immune response-based pathogen killing allows for increased viral loads, leading to time-based systemic viral immune reactions that we see of as hyperinflammation and cellular damage at a macro level. The second category of poor COVID-related outcomes comes from genetic single nucleotide polymorphisms of immune viral pathogen recognition and killing. Unfortunately, these two realities can coexist, leading to massive disease burdens, and in the U.S., we have massive disease burden, right? We're a, geno, a heterogeneous population with people from all over the world, yet we have some of the highest rates of death. So George, you know, as an expert in immune health, let's discuss the basics of how COVID you know, gets into us and causes trouble. And I want you to really take a sort of a deeper dive as to what humans can really start to think about moving forward to prevent the next pandemic from wiping Americans out at the level it did like this, this pandemic, which is such a tragedy. Okay, Chris, let's, let's do the dive. And, um, you know, it's been historical in terms of uh, the rapidity and the tsunami um, of medical, scientific, and data informatics that we have been bombarded with since um, early March of uh, 2020. And really, even prior to that, in late December when the alarm bells started to ring off about what was going on in, in China, in the Wuhan labs, uh, the marketplace, uh, and, and it didn't really matter which one it was. The results were what they were and what they are, and we remain to see what will happen next. Um, so SARS-CoV-2, um, to get a little bit technical, and uh, to understand a little bit of the pathophysiology is a um, enhanced virus that uh, is able to attach to the ACE2 receptor. And the ACE2 receptor is interesting because um, it is the byproduct of, of formation um, by uh, changing angiotensin 
uh, to its downstream products, uh, which uh, regulate uh, cardiovascular tone, blood pressure, heart rate, et cetera, et cetera. And the ACE2 receptor is ubiquitous in certain organs, uh, obviously the lung, um, but also uh, the, the respiratory tree itself. So uh, the nasal mucosa, the upper airways, uh, the mid airways, um, the ciliary uh, epithelium, and then down deep into, into the lung tissue itself and the alveoli. Uh, additionally, there are ACE2 receptors in other organs including myocardium, which is an interesting take as to, you know, what we see as a increased uh, risk of small but definite um, myocarditis post-vaccination in young males um, that we see. Um, still, you know, not a reason not to vaccinate, but to understand the pathophysiology. And I'll be editing uh, opinion uh, as we talk science periodically. Um, yep. But I'll try and stay non-political. Um, and, um, and then we find that, you know, um, that patients who have succumbed to COVID, whether it's uh, early on, say in the first 14 days, or have prolonged clinical courses, uh, show that there is viral activity, although not necessarily replication in for tissues such as, for example, um, the central nervous system. So these are areas of domain that um, the ACE2 receptor is, is important. There's also a, uh, ACE receptors in the kidney. Um, and again, blood pressure, orthostatic control, um, uh, uh, heart rate, uh, a lot of autonomic nervous system um, activity that uh, can be actually part of long COVID, um, which right now lacks a definitive scientific singular um, definition, but seems to be right now uh, from meta-analyses that we have includes over 50 possible symptoms, but fatigue is number one. Uh, brain fog is uh, up there. Uh, certain patients have uh, a POTS syndrome-like or cardiovascular instability-like uh, syndrome with resting tachycardia. This is a new phenomenon. And the association of, the, of some of the molecular pathophysiology we just described in terms of the location of the ACE2 receptors in um, command and control centers for barometrics, for blood pressure, and for orthostatic changes in the body are part of what we think um, is happening. So I'm gonna pause there, see if you have any questions before we go on. Now I'm just gonna, uh, just a couple of definitions, POTS, postural orthostatic hypotension uh, syndrome, you know, where, the, where the tachycardia is the T, the heart rate goes up and it's very clear you know, when I was talking to um, P Dr. Peter Rowe at Johns Hopkins, that long COVID appears to be very much like chronic fatigue syndrome, my myalgic encephalitis triggered by a different virus, and that this 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 hallmark of this orthostasis and tachycardia associated with with the fatigue and the brain fog, uh, we're seeing similarities. And so I, I think to your point, the inflammation, the antecedent genetic risk factors are driving some of this stuff, but pathophysiologically, it's the ability of the virus to get into places it shouldn't 
and immunologically cause damage. So yeah, I agree. So, um, you know, and then what happened, what's happened uh, once the, the spike protein, the RBD, uh, the binding domain for uh, SARS-CoV-2 attaches to the ACE2 receptor, that allows entry into the cell. Um, and uh, that's when uh, viral replication and taking over of a cell's uh, um, machinery basically uh, begins, including disabling, um, similar to um, the use of um, electronic warfare um, before an attack happens. Um, the the uh, um, control and command centers immediately outside the cell that include ACE1 and ACE2 um, are disabled and the machinery inside the cell then begins to hone itself for replication of virion. Uh, and so any virus, that's its goal to right. basically spread and to continue to uh, replicate. Um, so now um, what we see is, and this is not my singular take. Uh, I have to quote Dr. Len Calabrese uh, from the Cleveland Clinic, who's, who's uh, uh, honestly a world expert um, in uh, SARS-CoV viral immunology and who uh, I've had the privilege to communicate with and also to attend some of his uh, courses that I say, you know, constantly um, updating because again, the breadth and depth of the change in science is uh, mind boggling so that yeah. what we thought this, this today may be different tomorrow. Right. Um, so translating into patients, you know, the first five days, what we see is a high viral load. We see a curve coming down as after the first five days, this is the virion load. Um, so that it's at about seven to 14 days, the virus is already um, barely detected or undetected right. in most cases. At the same time, from zero to five days, we have inflammation and neat immunity, one of your favorite topics, yep, yep. immunity uh, taking on, and then switching to adaptive immunity where IgG and, I, and IgE antibodies, IgA antibodies are, are forming. Initially, the uh, innate uh, immune response was all IgM autoantibody. But as the virion level is going down, and as the antibody levels are going up, this is the point that begins to occur as to which way we're gonna go. Are we gonna go right or are we gonna go left? Are we gonna take the red pill or are we gonna take the blue pill? Right. And the differential at that point to determine the 80% where this infection is inconsequential versus the 20% where it is, and then the mortality of even the smaller uh, really um, half a percent to one and a half percent of that 20% um, becomes the crux of what happens with morbidity, mortality, intubations, uh, and the rising uh, death tolls um, nationally. Uh, we're going to be hitting uh, close to a million um, uh, since this began now. 
um, in March of 2020, which uh, right now is actually almost the anniversary, as I'm looking at the date that we're doing this podcast, of when we began lockdowns. So the differential in phase three of the hyper-inflammatory phase is what I think we should focus on a lot of our talk this morning in terms of healthy lifestyle and prevention. But I will say that in the adaptive immune phase, um, I'll make two comments. uh, The first five days, five to seven days, Uh, it looks like uh, interferons are as part of that adaptive immune response are super important. And in in your age group, in pediatrics, uh, children have much higher levels of protective interferon. In adult rheumatology and autoimmune disease patients that I deal with primarily, and even without autoimmunity, uh, as people get older, uh, and specifically past 80, there is a significant drop in interferon uh, capability. Additionally, we've noticed that Um, mortality is associated with, and severity of COVID is associated both with ICU, with intubation, and with death, accordingly to the, uh, actually a linear um, elevation in in the ability to have protective interferon. So the most severe cases have low um, levels, and the patients who have succumbed have the lowest of those levels. Now, why would that be? Uh, Number one, there is age. And so we see that age is the number one factor that uh, we're gonna call as the comorbidity. We've heard this, the elderly. Uh, The question is, is like, where is that cutoff exactly? And and can that cutoff be changed um, by lifestyle? And uh, the short answer is, uh, I believe yes. I so that we can have we can have a fifty-year-old who's physiologically might be like a sixty-five-year-old if they're not taking care of themselves. We could have a, an eighty-year-old who physiologically could be like a sixty-year-old if they are doing everything possible, and also have some genetics to help them. Um, so the other finding that I wanted to share with you and that I learned also from a rec- this recent conference in basic immunology at the Cleveland Clinic was that about uh, 4% of the population um, uh, is carrying autoantibodies against in- uh, interferon. So this is a problem. Th- this may be another subgroup um, that is dealt a bad hand. Um, and these autoantibodies actually increase with age. Right. And is that most primarily in men? Yes, yes, yes. So what we're saying is, is that uh, immune senescence Mm -hmm. um, with with loss of tolerance increases with age. This is like a known fact. Right. We also know that uh, people who have who have asymptomatic autoantibodies, that's a that's a, a um, biomarker of loss of tolerance. Right. 
Um, so the autoantibodies against interferon specifically seem to carry a much higher risk for morbidity and mortality. And al although it's a very small percentage of, of number of the total uh, population, they take up almost a fifth of the mortality of the, uh, the, in, in meta-analyses of patients who's, who've actually died and that have been studied. Right. So, so there is clearly a strong correlation with uh, interferon in terms of adaptive immunity and in, in early infection, and there's a correlation with age uh, being a risk factor with every five years, um, more or less increasing the risk of infection uh, to COVID uh, significantly. Uh, and these are things that we have to take into consideration. But let's talk about some of the comorbidities and see how they relate to risk. And maybe that gives us a guide as to what we can do in terms of prevention. So, so good. So yeah, let's do this before we go there. And I like that idea. But you know, so normally, let's just take a normal case, right? So oh, okay. you're hosting this. <laughs> ah, no, it's perfect. No worries. Let's just do this. Normal, <laughs> normal times, right? So humans need to balance the need for inflammation as a right of pathogen killing, like you're saying, against self-preservation from excess damage, let's say from this inflammation. In this case, the excess damage from inflammation is the major player. So in, in general, we're always trying to balance pathogen killing from self-destruction, right? Well, if it goes according to plan, like you're saying, the immune system revs up, the innate immune system gets there, the virus gets into the cell, like you elegantly said, interferons get cranked up. And the word interferon, I love it because it's interfering with the ability of the virus to do what it wants to do, which is hide from us and cause trouble, make more of itself and really do a lot of damage. So the interferons, that cell signaling molecule that goes out there and tells neutrophils, monocytes, everybody, hey, let's come in, kill the sucker and let's get back to normal, right? That's the normal response. Now, if the, if the pathogen gets in there and the inflammation-based mechanisms are, are normal, then you know, inflammasomes, neutrophil traps, all these things that are doing baseline killing don't get out of control. The system cleans itself up, the inflammation resolves and the patient returns to normal, right? So I think this is sort of the segue to, the, to where you wanna go because when it doesn't clean up, when the viral load gets too high, when the pathogen can't be killed because of the autoantibodies against interference, the lack of interference because of senescence from age or whatever the reasoning is that exists, Take us through that part because that's that's the that's where the inflammation understanding really comes to pass. What's driving these age-related phenomena that's bringing all this inflammation to bear that we see as this morbidity mortality scenario? So just just go down that road. Okay, so I'm gonna try. I'm gonna show you a little something first. All right. Yep. Okay, so that lack of balance on the road that we're going to go on to talk about what happens um, at, at the time that um, adaptive immunity begins to take over. Um, so we're talking now day seven to day 14. That differential um, of uh, risk factors that um, include, in my opinion, uh, and from data, and really from looking at our inflamed population of patients, of which we have thousands, um, it looks like 
baseline disease inflammation uh, in rheumatic patients is a factor. So people who are in moderate to high disease activity and say for the non-autoimmune patient, the non-rheumatic patient, the same thing applies. So patients who have high CRPs for whatever reason, whether they're juvenile onset diabetics, whether they have juvenile arthritis, whether it's a young man in his early 20s who is a significant male or female who is significantly overweight, obese, will have metabolic uh, inflammation occurring. Uh, leptin will be high. Pro-inflammatory uh, cytokines will be higher in that population than the, uh, individuals who have uh, normal BMI, quote unquote, ideal BMI. And, I, and I, I, I'm not an ascriber of BMI, but right. we look at it for populations and, you know, our EHRs, that, that's what they do. They don't look at percentage body fat, percentage lean muscle mass. Right. Uh, we can do that. We can measure all that. But just for the sake of our discussion, let, let's just stick with BMI, even though we know it's not a perfect measure. Um, so um, again, let's move to the diabetic briefly. Um, elevated insulin is a pro-inflammatory state. Insulin resistance uh, and having um, that uh, burst of insulin uh, occurring at night um, when uh, TNF and IL-6 are highest in the middle of the night, early morning, is, leads to some of the clinical phenomena that we see with people having um, their first heart attack or a heart attack at, you know, change of shift for house staff, usually at 6 a.m. in the ER. And here they come in, rolling in with crushing chest pain because those cytokines were peaking at that hour. Okay. And they're peaking due to inflamed atheromata. They're peaking due to uh, in, uh, inflamed cytokines as shown by elevated CRP and just routine uh, primary care settings. Oh, your CRP is 15. Um, hmm. uh, what should we start thinking about? Well, we need to start thinking about um, there's smoldering fire in my patient, and we need to look at both pharmacology-wise and lifestyle-wise, not just one or the other, uh, what we need to do to stabilize that. Um, we need to look at vessel inflammation in um, internal medicine and primary care of our patients. Since you now are dealing with the Sumani of obesity that did not exist in pediatrics when I trained. Right. You, you have like an adult population. Um, you, you're not a pediatrician. You're, you're now a, a young adult um, physician uh, who's, who's starting probably at, at age 10, 11, 12, instead of 17 and 18, right. with all the morbidities and mortalities of that population as they get older. So the same inflammatory milieu, the same inflammatory setting um, using uh, SED rate, CRP. I'm going to tell you about uh, two uh, vessel inflammatory markers I like to look at to 
tell me who's who's at risk. We're kind of deviating just slightly, but it, it we're not. Um, it's called the plaque test, LPPLA2, and right. myeloperoxidase. So myeloperoxidase we use in rheumatology as part of our ANCA serology, but it's also used in preventative cardiology uh, to look at vessel inflammation from non-autoimmune, but rather from metabolic inflammation and uh, plaque that is vulnerable, that has macrophage activation, again, innate immunity, uh, right. uh, working you know, behind the scenes to uh, um, create some chaos, uh, if not properly handled. So um, these are the people, these are some of the people who uh, have problems and who are more at risk at whatever age, um, but age seems to be number one. Um, we then have uh, uh, immune deficiency patients, again, of whatever age, whether it's pediatrics, whether it's common variable immunodeficiency, hypogammaglobulinemia, whether it's acquired or innate immune deficiencies. Uh, we have our oncology patients, cancer patients who have been on protocol, who are receiving chronic therapeutics. Um, um, I'm going to give a shout out for prednisone, uh, 10 milligrams or higher, negative shout out, um, as being a risk factor for COVID um, and actually a risk factor for sepsis, mortality, hosp hospitalization and death in our rheumatic population. But I'm going to say that it's really for any population, and I mean chronic prednisone, not not a, a you know med a pred pack or a medral dose pack or you know um, even a few weeks. There's data that you know maybe the, the that at one month this begins to change, but uh, let let's just call it chronic prednisone usage, ten milligrams or higher, is a risk factor for any type of sepsis, including viral sepsis, bacterial sepsis, hospitalization, etc. So we try to keep people under 10 milligrams who have chronicity. So that might be your IBD patients. It could be your psoriasis patients. It right. could be your juvenile autoimmune patients, lupus, rheumatoid, it doesn't matter. Uh, we approach it that way. Um, what else? Um, I would say that uh, disease activity in the rheumatic patients is very important. So that means that if I have an RA patient in high disease activity, their risk of COVID and morbidity and mortality is higher right. than the patient who's well-controlled. So that would also go for IBD patients. So let's take it, let's take it from, George, let's take it from the perspective of, so you have a, a from your perspective, you have the immune challenge patient either from a rheumatic disease where they have antibodies attacking self tissue, and they're either inflamed or not, and then they need more drug or not. So clearly the prednisone before getting sick over 10 milligrams is an issue because that means you have a higher burden of inflammation. So you need more drug to suppress the fire, right? Yeah. Whereas prednisone is protective once you get sick um, and, and need, to, need to squelch the inflammation on day 10, 12, 14, whatever it is, but it's the antecedent risk factor. So what's driving the antecedent risk factor? So you, 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 went, you went there in the beginning, but let's go deeper there. Like I'm thinking hyperglycemia 
you know, I start to look at what hyperglycemia does, right? So it drives, uh, you know, hypoxia-induced factor one alpha, which then drives myeloid-derived suppressor cells. And eventually we end up with a world of low NK cell, natural killer cell activity and low Th1 activity, which are the two main players, I would think, in the front end of viral surveillance. So for me, when I think of lifestyle stuff, you know, if we just tell a general pop, let's say it's not a rheumatoid population, let's say the, the 340 million Americans that exist today, right? To me, the number one thing I would say we need to tell people to do is avoid excess sugar, avoid excess fructose. All these things are driving this, what I call TH switch, right? So what do you think about that? And where else would you, where else would you look to help reduce antecedent burdens of viral surveillance dysfunction? So I, I totally agree with you that the number one culprit is excessive sugar and, and you know, that, that goes with our obesity um, uh, pandemic. Um, uh, where else? I, I would look towards two areas. One would be activity, um, balanced activity, um, and um, uh, sleep. Um, stress reduction, um, learning how to manage stress. Uh, we can't always avoid stress, but how do we manage it? And that would be for everyone. Um, and that has both neurohumoral, cardiovascular, um, and uh, obviously uh, psychically, um, lots of benefit. Um, so Mecha so, me mechanistically what's happening from stress because stress chronic stress acute stress is not a bad thing it's the chronic stress that's driving immune dysfunction what mechanistically is happening so chronic stress you're right acute stress is actually good um, right. because it can be motivating it can help us get things done uh, deadlines, whatever, whatever it is, but chronic stress is a different animal. And so uh, mechanistically with chronic stress, we have a disruption of the pituitary hypothalamic uh, adrenal access. That, that is number one. Uh, so the PAH axis is affected um, uh, consequently and or in conjunction with that, we have both cardiovascular and immune changes, some of which you've already said that TH switch is happening or enhanced um, by enhanced uh, sympathetic tone, right. less parasympathetic tone. So it's almost like thinking of the sympathetic nervous system as necessary, but chronically it's pro-inflammatory. Right. And parasympathetic is anti-inflammatory, but it's kind of like a sloth if you have an emergency, you know? Right. So uh, we have to have that balance. But what, what will happen is, is that um, chronic stress, high cortisol levels begin to deaden receptors and we start to get that metabolic switch in conjunction with the immune switch in innate immunity specifically. So we, we have really um, a an imbalance of um, how we were meant to be wired. Um, we're not meant to be in chronic stress. We're, we're meant to be in the Garden of Eden. Right. And we are meant to, um, you know, eat apples. <laughs> 
exercise. I'll keep this PG, don't worry. Uh, <laughs> and to really um, be able to live a fruitful life and be able to um, not have chronic stress as a burden that then actually manifests itself in a neuroendocrine and immunologic uh, pattern of chronic inflammation. So this leads to chronic inflammation. Right. Um, so I think, and we have data now in vivo, in vitro on this. We have data showing that stress reduction techniques um, have been important in survival in immunodeficient states like HIV oncology patients. We have it in rheumatology now. This isn't like even maybe. This is well established now. Right. And since you and I did our fellowship, I mean, the data just keeps pouring on in, 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 these, uh, in this regard and in multiple scenarios. So uh, you don't have to have a disease state for chronic stress um, and sympathetic overload okay. to, to be uh, uh, um, really immu uh, immunosuppressive, essentially, um, and to cause a functional immunodeficiency. Right. And I think that that is really, when you begin to couple the factors that we talked about, uh, sugar, uh, um, also abno creating abnormal proteins that have now been coated with sugar that become immunogenic. Right. So that Th1 and NK cells are, and macrophages are like firing when they shouldn't be firing and right. not firing when they should fire. Right. That's the that's part of the imbalance. So what can our listeners and our uh, physicians and our patients uh, do to help them in this regard? Well, have a, str a stress management um, program in place, which would, you know, can, can look like different things. It's, it doesn't have to look the same for everyone, but uh, you know, I'll share mine with you and your, and your listeners. And um, I am not the most uh, um, Zen person all the time. Okay. But I did definitely um, do certain things very consistently. And that includes uh, breathing and meditation, even if it's for five minutes uh, in the morning. Uh, and when I have time, I, I do it much longer usually with my animals, uh, and we do it together. Um, uh, exercise, um, you know, that is part of my chronic stress management, as well as it having the ancillary benefits, uh, cardiovascular-wise, metabolically, right. as well as creating good inflammation right. to, to be able to rebalance our uh, high, uh, a, a potentially hyperimmune response. Um, and I think that whether you do talk therapy, whether you journal, uh, you know, these all have, as you know, uh, data and um, validity in terms of effectiveness in reducing um, um, pain, stress, improving quality of life. And, and, that, and I think that that's one of the measures is how do we improve quality of life and does improving quality of life actually have an antiviral um, uh, effect. And, and I think we would agree that it does. Absolutely. So, yeah. So QOL, 
equals healthy living. Healthy living includes uh, antiviral and antipathogen and anti-cancer uh, risk factors and anti-cardiovascular risk factors. Um, so that all of these things are tied and integrated. We, we don't have to think of, hey, you know, you have to do this only for COVID. No, it's for overall benefit and effect. So um, right. I hope I answered that. Yeah, let me, let me say go you there because it's perfect. And right, so let me, I'm going to recap a little bit. So when you think about humans that are chronically mentally stressed, as you stated, they're in this sort of chronic sympathetic overload, which I always and everyone has coined flight, fight or flight mode. Fight or flight mode specifically has counter-regulatory effects where you get this cortisol response element no longer working perfectly. So you pump out tons of NF-kappa-B, nuclear factor kappa-B, which is this, as you stated, hugely inflammatory chemical, which raises our C-reactive protein, which is that generic marker of inflammation. So we know chronic mental stress, stress affects us immunologically, but where I want to take you next, that then messes with parasympathetic function. So parasympathetic function is helping us digest, helping us move our bowels, helping us um, stay in a calm state. Blood vessels are, are more relaxed, but specifically let's go now to the microbiome. So if you're if you're you, you, my second favorite topic, you knew we were going here. Um, so if your parasympathetic system shut off because you're in fight or flight mode, you're not moving your bowels. You know, you start to get this dysbiosis, the term we use for your bugs start to get dysfunctional. Now couple that with, you know, the same people who have diabetes or eating the wrong foods, which are also causing more bad bacteria to grow. And from the work of Patrice Connie, we know that this becomes then systemically active because these bacteria die when they die, some of their cell wall debris fall into the bloodstream and cause more inflammation. But I recently interviewed Alessio Fasano, um, pediatric gastroenterologist from Harvard, and he looked specifically at why are kids getting MIS? And one of the antecedent risk factors for MIS was dysbiosis. Why? Because that is where the SARS virus decided to go and replicate and leak through the intestinal lining, causing the spike protein up in the bloodstream, driving inflammation. So dysbiosis for me is one of the main players here. If, if we talk about stress, sleep, diet, I think all of those hit dysbiosis. So it, again, we have thousands of people listening to this podcast. You know, some are physicians, but we have a fair amount of mothers and, and fathers. What's the answer there? So it's not a simple one um answer but yet it is i mean what you said sugar 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 uh, I, i'm gonna i'm gonna start there and that while there are many foods um many macronutrients and micronutrients and fake food and whole food um available you know to our listeners to our patients um uh, for physicians to be able to counsel, um, we know that um, uh, foods high in the wrong type of fat, trans fats, foods high in empty calories, um, uh, uh, excessive red meat, um, and the the types of food that are pro-inflammatory. You know, I I I, I can't. Uh, Stop thinking of, of, of two, you know, highly addictive uh, fake, uh, 
uh, junk foods that include uh, Doritos, the Dorito effect, and um, and that you can't just eat one entire roll of right. of, of of Oreos, right? Yeah. And uh, the effect that that has in terms of uh, neuroendocrine, um, mu receptor, and uh, habituation in in vitro models uh, akin to heroin. Um, so sugar addiction has many uh, layers and the gut is definitely one of them. Um, the, uh, the, having low vitamin D, certain micronutrients, uh, vitamin E, uh, uh, vitamin D uh, specifically, uh, L-glutamine, all increase in the ability to have intestinal permeability. Uh, if you have a pro-inflammatory gut with dysbiosis, which means imbalance, imbalance of, let's keep it simple, I'm not gonna go through species, of good uh, facultative bacteria uh, symbionts versus um, potentially pathogenic bacteria. Um, that have certain metabolic signatures. If we do all we can to keep that balance intact by eating a diverse, high fiber, micronutrient dense diet, um, that goes a long way towards helping clear the sludge. This is very similar to what happened with COVID in our natural ecosystems in, in the lockout. Uh, it, you know, so if you look at pictures of what happened to our rivers and streams here in Miami, we have pictures of uh, two to three weeks post COVID uh, lockdown, the pollution, the, the grunge in the water, the air, um, the lack of wildlife two weeks, three weeks after lockdown. So rapid resilience in nature, everything looked amazing clean, pristine, the animals were back. That is our natural state. Similarly, in the microbiome, to give hope uh, to everyone is that, you know, it, it gets messed up quickly, but it, it is quite resilient. Within five to seven days, uh, we have um, normalization of diversity. I'm not saying it's perfect. Um, and we have things such as SIBO, which are recalcitrant, difficult to treat, and require months and months of, of ongoing therapeutics and lifestyle change, et cetera. But for the average person who does not have SIBO, but who does have um, uh, uh, dysbiosis and uh, who has um, signs and symptoms of, of this, as well as inflammation, Cleaning up your diet and your lifestyle within a week or two yields amazing results. So, and if you feel better, if our guts feel better, we feel better. Right. Um, uh, so the reduction in, in inflammation, the switch uh, of TH17 cells, um, the, the measurement of IL-6, TNF-alpha, um, the... Um, the ability for us to have signatures of what a normal microbiome looks like immunologically. We have that. Um, and um, Dr. Jose Shear, NYU, um, uh, 
uh, in January 2020 uh, showed both normal RA, lupus, psoriatic arthritis, psoriasis, AS uh, patients, what their microbiome looks like in health and disease, and what the cytokine signature looks like in corresponding to disease activity for each disease state. So we can see that if we uh, uh, address the microbiome, and the question is, is how? And the question always comes up, well, what do you think about probiotics and which one should I use? All right, that's just a matter of like 30 seconds or 60 seconds away. Um, so um, I'll so pause before, that. Before you, before you go there, so, you know, so SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, clearly is where the bacteria start to translocate out of the large intestine into the small intestine, which is not supposed to be there. One of the biggest risk factors for that, I think, is poor transit. Why do you have poor transit? Because you have sympathetic overload, which goes back again to your chronic stress story about chronic mental stress is driving a lot of this stuff too. So it all ties together. What I've learned since we did our fellowship was the web of interaction is literally between every single piece of this discussion, sugar, microbiome, neuroendocrine stress, everything's tied together. So you can't separate them out. But you know, the news to use for folks would be for the microbiome, what would you say? Like you, you have a, your 30-year-old patient in front of you or a 10-year-old patient in front of you, you say, okay, here's the news to use to build the healthiest microbiome you can. And I agree with you, probiotics are a, a, a minuscule piece of this pie. Fiber you stated, what else? Well, I mean, healthy fats, um, micronutrient-dense diet. So it's going to be, you know, uh, uh, greens and, and, and color in my diet. But if I have somebody who's got a lot of GI issues, they're not going to be able to do all this right in the beginning. So right. before, before I get to like, you know, what my ideal microbiome type diet would be generically, yeah. um, I, I take an induction approach with our patients because we're seeing uh, such an inflamed population. But I, I think that this could hold true for anyone. You don't have to have a rheumatic disease to consider this approach. And here's the approach. Um, my mother used to say, punish your GI tract if you're not feeling well. And, and it, it, sounded, it sounds really not so good in English. It, 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 uh, she used to, and, and I said, where'd you get that from mom? She said, oh, um, uh, your grandmother. I said, really? I said, so, okay. So what they and were saying that, to me- Was that in Spanish you would say it? Yes, yes. Say it in Spanish. So, uh, castiga, castiga el estómago. Uh -huh. Okay. Uh, so to them, it was the stomach, punish the stomach. So, um, but what were they were, so I would say, well, what do you mean? You know, uh, you know, like hit myself in the stomach. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> so they would say, no, today just have, um, uh, just have uh, chamomile tea. Um, just have uh, warm water with lemon. Uh, don't eat anything um, for most of the day. So basically what they were saying to me is what I recommend yeah. now with a little more understanding and knowledge, which is um, stay hydrated, 
but perhaps but consider for some people or for many people I, I do this regularly i do do intermittent fasting on a regular basis and i believe that that can mean different things it could just mean within the day it could be a few days right say two or three it could be up to seven to ten days now i'm not recommending an intermittent fast for 10 days to someone who's in their 70s 80s has multiple medical problems on on you know, has a lot of um, uh, comorbidities. Um, and so we have to pick and choose length, uh, intensity, and make sure people don't get dehydrated, essentially. So right. it can be done, and it can be done regularly. And so I think that intermittent fasting is one modality that helps the microbiome. And as you initiate a normalization of diet, you might focus on you know, um, um, basically a vegan type of approach and under, and now I'm not addressing food sensitivities at all, okay? I'm just giving the generics of how we approach it. And uh, the protein sources, um, you know, we can, we can wait five to 10 days to really focus on protein and the protein should be clean protein. And in rheumatology and autoimmune um, uh, worlds, uh, I've been having people who are in high disease activity states um, to eliminate cow's milk products, gluten, hello, red meat, to use fish and chicken and whole protein, vegetarian protein, uh, to stick really with whole foods. I'm okay, you know, with shakes uh, here and there, but not to become as the primary food source for individuals, uh, unless, unless there's some type of medical food necessary. Uh, for detoxes, medical foods and shakes are used, but they, in my opinion, they should be combined with the, the type of uh, initial pattern for um, induction of microbiome balance. So induction therapy includes uh, intermittent fasting for, for depending on you know, your, your patient's uh, capacity, medical state, their willingness, et cetera, uh, adequate hydration, um, um, uh, going towards a vegan type of, of diet, essentially, primarily, and elimination of immunogenic food uh, groups that I, I told you that um, right. we have data for, and, and this seems to work. So when we do this, when we do this, it looks like people have an amazing response, just like the streams and the rivers um, improving in two weeks, it yeah. can be very quick, and, and I'm very impressed with that. Yeah, and I'll tell you, I, I, I have been, I'm on my sixth year of time-restricted feeding. For a period of time, I was intermittent fasting. Now I'm really just time-restricted feeding. So I'm only eating between 1 p.m. and generally 6 to 7 p.m. every day. And the rest of the time, I'm, I'm fasting. And, and the reason I went down that road, actually, was because Sam Yannick, who is a fantastic um, immunology learner, had, sat, had done a lecture series and I was listening to about the migrating motor complex. Now, interesting it was that when you stopped eating, 
the migrating motor complex in the GI tract starts to work and starts to flush everything downstream. So it's literally doing the exact opposite of what induces SIBO in the first place and all, of course, chronic mental stress. So I actually recommend to my teenagers to time-restrict feed. And people are like, oh, they can't. No, since the dawn of time, humans have redundancy and resiliency built into the metabolic system to handle periods of caloric scarcity. So I don't think there's any reason, unless you have some diabetic issue where you get hypoglycemic, um, to, to have to eat constantly. I think the fascinating thing for me with children is the one-year-olds stop eating three times a day. They, they're more interested in running and playing and they randomly eat. I tell parents all day, that's totally fine. They'll eat the calories they need. So I think for the news to use for parents is less is more when it comes to food. And to your point, I think very clearly, especially less of those foods that are immunologically active. So the glutens, the dairies, the, the corns, the, the red meats. So reduce those things, but load up heavily on what you're also stating, which is these fiber-based foods, all these whole foods that are loaded with micronutrients. So that's where I want to go next now. As an immunologist, right? So you sit here and you look at everything from a rheumatologic, immunologic bend. What micronutrients are on your list of sort of must-haves, um, you know, when it comes to, to everything we're talking about. Yeah, so micronutrients that must-have um, include, um, well, the minerals uh, for me, so that's gonna be uh, magnesium, calcium, um, uh, the vitamins most, most important are uh, these always number one for me uh omega threes um and zinc. for d george do you aim yeah. for 40 or more or 60 or more on your blood test um like i grudgingly accept 40 or more but i'm not happy um, okay i get a smile and <laughs> <laughs> I get a it's better it's better than five <laughs> when it's 60 to 80 I get a smile um and and I have to teach and um uh both both the patients and the primary referring physicians to stop stopping my vitamin d when uh the patient is you know in the 80 to 90 range and they're doing great right they're doing they're like perfect they have right. zero, you know they and they go you know oh stop your d stop your d you know and this is the one time of the year that that uh, uh practitioner seeing the patient um has missed the entire year of you know chronicity and improvement and more improvement sees them they're doing great and that's what they focus on right <laughs> Right, exactly. It's, it's incredible. And again, the whole point of it is to be sufficient, not, you know, the RDA, which is a useless metric. We need to go for what makes the body hum at the highest speed. And so, yeah, so D60 to 80, love it. Okay. And you said zinc and you uh, said magnesium yeah. and calcium. Yep. Vitamin A uh, for the gut specifically. Um, if I have patients where I'm working on the gut, the microbiome, they have prominent GI symptoms. Uh, I am using L-glutamine uh, significantly. I'm using berberine, um, you know, in, in, in the SIBO patients. I'm using combinations sometimes of antibiotics and plant-based antibacterials um, to try and improve the, uh, uh, their state. 
Um, so, um, I mean, I'll tell you what I take, um, yeah, which maybe, that. maybe he, maybe that gives an idea of my, of a philosophy, yeah. um, as opposed to I'm treating, you know, uh, patients. I mean, um, so I, I've, I've oscillated on the amount of EPA DHA, but, uh, but so I used to take two to three grams a day. Um, non-enteric coated. Now, now as I've gotten a, a little more mature, um, <laughs> uh, uh, I'm taking uh, enteric coated one gram. Okay, one gram. Um, and does that come as fish oil, or are you doing krill oil? I'm I'm taking fish oil. Okay. Taking fish oil. It's EPA DHA one gram. Okay. Um, I I take an enormous what you might consider an enormous amount of vitamin D. Um, because apparently either I have either an absorption issue or I have a SNP mutation for the vitamin D receptor, right. uh, one or the other. So I require 30,000 units uh, five days a week. I, I take the weekends off for good behavior. So that, <laughs> that's, that's, that's 150,000 units a week. And I'm I'm in the mid fifty to sixty range, and I'm okay with that. Okay. Um, I take zinc. Um, yeah, almost every day, but you know I'm I'm at oscillate forty five. Uh, I take B twelve folate, methylated methylated folate. Okay, that I'm going to put that up under vitamin D as as a number two. Yep. Number methylated two. B vitamins. Methylated Got it. Folate. Yes. Um, uh, due to the Krebs cycle, due to uh, uh, control of MTHFR on right. so many ubiquitous immune and non-immune cell functions, mitochondrial function, affecting mTOR, uh, one of your favorite topics. Yep. Um, and um, all of that highly important in, to keep um, cell... Um, Cell, cellular age more optimal, okay? Yeah. Optimizing metabolism, optim, optimizing Im, Im, immune health, optimizing cellular health has to be involved with um, our mitochondria. So uh, methylated B12, methylated vitamins. Uh, I take uh, antioxidants, including vitamin C. I think I take extended release vitamin C, a thousand milligrams. Uh, I do that. I do all this once a day because I cannot handle multiple dosings. Right. And um, so I take a sterified C. Uh, so it lasts 24 hours. I take vitamin E, uh, 400 units. I take magnesium. Uh, I take E with selenium, uh, my little prostate. And, um, and that's it. That's what I take. Um, I do recovery shakes uh, post-workout within the hour that include um, uh, clean protein and you know, some carbs uh, and fiber, oats. Um, and I try to mimic uh, your uh, eating, eating uh, periods. I'm a little, I'm a little laxer. Uh, you know, I start at 11, I go to eight. Uh, but I'm very consistent with that. And that I feel better with that. 
Um, and I and I think that everyone has to find their zone, what works for them. Uh, you that know, may be I, the most important thing you say today, honestly, I think, because we spend far too much time in medicine trying to pigeonhole everybody into the same hole. And it's not. We're all a little bit different. So that's a critical point. I appreciate you saying that, George. Yeah. And then I, you know, I looked at the handful of my vitamins this morning, actually, because I was running away from my dogs because they think that when I'm doing that, it's their tree time. So I have, I'm running <laughs> around with my vitamins, like in here, to be jumped by these hundred pound animals who want to kiss me and lick me, but they also want what I'm holding because they think it's a treat for yeah. them. I love okay. it. So uh, I was looking at it and I said, wow, you know, kind of like polypharmacy there, but um you know, um, I only take two meds. Uh, so I'm 68. I only take two meds. One's for BPH and one is uh, just uh, uh, compounded thyroid. That's it. Yeah. Uh, so I think that exercise balance, uh, consistent exercise, you know, um, for our listeners and physicians, hey, man, we got we to gotta show our patients what to do. So I don't know, 30 to 60 minutes, three to five days a week. I rest on weekends, I recover, I get massage, uh, I get uh, acupuncture if I have an injury. I don't take any meds for you know soreness other than an occasional Tylenol. I also take, oh, I also take curcumin. Oh yeah. Uh, curcumin, resveratrol and Boswellia attached to NAC. Uh, I'll send you that. Um, but that's like my anti-inflammatory, um, antiviral, just general health approach that I think that with a good diet, anti-inflammatory diet that works for you, um, you know, eliminating the food sensitivities, we didn't get into that, um, doing mind-body work, uh, exercising, not doing excessive work, because that um, overtraining, do not overtrain. I mean, our bodies tell us when we're overtraining. I'll tell my trainer, nope, got to take off uh, Friday. Today yeah. is Thursday, but I have to train today. Yeah. Um, and I think that a regimen of work-life balance, all, all is important. And, you know, passing this forward, passing it on, you know, to my family, to my coworkers, to my colleagues, to my patients, you know, just becoming part of the lifestyle. Yeah, and George, you know, I, I think no matter what pandemic in the future, what viral, bacterial, parasitic, whatever pathogen we run into, the commonality to survival has always been the same. It's taking care of the self. And, and to your point, you're doing all the things to optimize your personal health. Therefore, you have the least risk at age 68 of a, of a negative outcome. And for me, that's the news to use for everybody, no matter what age you're at. Kids need much less supplementation, primarily because they have less senescent cells and damage. As we get older, we definitely need more. But unfortunately, to your point, we're seeing a lot more kids now that are actually acting like old people because they're eating such poor quality food and they're so stressed. So I actually am using more supplements in kids than I ever dreamed that I would. But that being said, I know you have a hard stop in a couple of minutes. Um, I think this has been an amazing tour through essential understandings of what immunology looks like from a self-care perspective, because that's frankly what I was looking for in this. And this is exactly what we need, because if people understand self-care from the neurologic side, 
they're really setting the whole neuroendocrine metabolic system up for success because they're all tied together. So, you know, I ask every guest one question. I didn't prep you for this, so you're just going to have to deal with it on the fly. My question is, if you can get a golden ticket and you can hand it to the president or Congress and get one major thing changed, what would that be? And I'll, I'll tell you what mine is to give you a chance to think. I am incensed and always have been incensed by, by our school food. I think kids are being poisoned by the food they're being offered and it's setting them up for failure. Half of our kids are eating 66% of their calories from school. So that to me is a nightmare. I would hand the golden ticket in and say, from now on, our kids eat gourmet. End of story. What would you choose? Oh, I like that. I like that. I would choose to empower um, all, all people, but certainly the future generation, to be able to have uh, uh, the knowledge and ability to have um, a, a, either a piece of land or to have the equivalent of that to be able to uh, grow their essential um, micronutrients um, and to be able to um, uh, basically uh, go from the earth to the table and have that cycle reconnected because um, living in cities, um, you know, I know you're in North Carolina where, you know, Miami's becoming, has become uh, more and more metropolis, Fort Lauderdale. Uh, I grew up in Manhattan in the, in the concrete jungle. Um, you know, I thought this was rural when I got here. Uh, that's how my perspective is. But you know the the major the, the major populace and the increasing populace in even formerly rural areas um, that the elimination of that connection of the earth to the human is something that um, you know I, I think I, I would address and that's not the only way to address it but um, uh, Having have people who who cannot afford to eat well, um, scarcity due to access and financial restriction. You know, we can say anti-inflammatory Mediterranean diet up the wazoo, but if my patient can't afford it, what good is it? Okay, right. so you said it in the school. I'm saying it similarly, but to the household. Yeah. Um, let let's let them have a garden. Let's let's supply them with that consistently, let them begin to uh, ethnically use um, uh, Mother Earth, the soil, to grow the, uh, the types of foods that they want that are nutrient and that bring them uh, closer in, in conjunction with our planet. That, that would yeah. be my... And again, I think that's, that's a, a beautiful sentiment for society. And again, I don't, I don't see why anybody wouldn't want that, right? It's like a universal, universal beauty of what we should all be asking for. I think the Native American population always had that connection to the earth well established. And, and I often, when I see movies of Native American tribes, I, I just, it just romanticized to me how beautiful they were, you know, back in the uncorrupted days before our governments got involved in messing things up. And to me, that's the way I would love to see our society sort of revert back to having that access to, to food that is of high quality. And so 
George, if, if anyone wanted to follow you, go to your website, um, any of that stuff, tell me how they can reach you. Sure. Uh, thanks, Chris, for, for, for that. So theoasisinstitute.com, um, that's, that's the site that, that pretty much says what we're doing. Uh, we have our podcast there. We have our, um, our practitioners there, um, both for approaching uh, wellness and integrative care, not just for autoimmune patients, but for anyone um, and, uh, you know, we try to go ahead and incubate some concepts that we can, um, bring out to our larger, uh, uh autoimmune, uh, national group, which is called ARA, uh, American Arthritis Rheumatology Associates. So, uh, as an integrative practitioner, I, I have the privilege of, of educating, leading, um, uh, other rheumatologists who may not have had the training you and I have had as in fellowship. So it's a big responsibility. I, I don't take it lightly. And, um, you know, the site is a, a place where people can connect with us. And we're also able to connect people nationally if they need uh, rheumatologists that are uh, highly competent and then have an integrative exposure. Yeah. Yeah, I think for me, that's the. This is how we get information out to the world to help them make change. Because I think empowerment of the self is the key. I don't. I, I like you. I've been giving away information for a long time and love to keep doing it because it's just the way that we can level the playing field against the misinformation being given by many institutions that I don't like. Um, so George, hey, my brother, I love you. I appreciate the time, um, the sharing of your vast wisdom. I mean, all of these guest listeners, everybody have no idea you were the smartest guy in our fellowship class. You were, we had a speaker of the class and that was you. And I have been always uh, thinking about how blessed I was to have those two years together in Arizona and how lucky I, I was to have you as a friend. So I appreciate you, your time, your wisdom, and just your heart, my friend. You're just so kind, and um, I love you, buddy, uh, and I thank you for all your support throughout the years and when life on life's terms has happened. Uh, you're a special person, and I'm so happy that you're doing this. You're in your environment. Uh, keep on flying, Chris. Love you, Ben. Take care. Bye. Well, I hope you enjoyed my discussion with Dr. George Munoz. He is a amazing person, uh, an incredible thinker, and just somebody who really has spent the time to try and figure out what are the upstream risks of disease, specifically in his space of rheumatology and immunology, but just in general for for human health and how we can make better decisions moving forward regardless of what the etiology of the next pandemic is or next major crisis is from a human health infectious disease perspective. So I'm going to give you a couple more news to use pieces of information. In a journal uh, known as Integrative Medicine, Sam Yannick, Dr. Sam Yannick and uh, Dr. Joe Pizzorno, Dr. Helen Messier and, Dr. and Dr. Cara Fitzgerald wrote a very, very interesting article uh, last year 
called Evidence Supporting a Phased Immunophysiological Approach to COVID-19 from Prevention Through Recovery. And that was published in, in uh, 2020. From that article, the authors really look deep into what are the ways we can eliminate the risks upstream with all the escalation and inflammation. And they state, number one, sleep is critical. Healthy sleep is anti-inflammatory and promotes appropriate Th1 response. And remember, from a Th1 response, we think of active viral killing. So disordered sleep is characterized by reduced sleep efficiency, less slow-wave sleep, and more REM sleep. Disordered sleep yields increased inflammation and then increases Th2 response at the expense of the Th1 response, which for us promotes more allergy, inflammation, and, and and allergic type diseases, but not good pathogen killing. Sound sleep hygiene practices are fundamental for promoting healthy sleep. In addition, substances such as melatonin can be added to enhance sleep promotion. Not only is melatonin a useful sleep aid, it also inhibits the NLRP3 inflammasome activation and reduces airway inflammation, which is very well seen in SARS-CoV-2. Number two, they state stress. Stress chemistry is inherently inflammatory. Many patients will have been enduring significant chronic stress by the time they become infected. Though it is not part of the main protocol, for patients with significant elevated stress levels, it may be useful to give adaptogens like ginseng or ashwagandha. The immune suppressive effects of cortisol are well known. Research has suggested that lung inflammation driven by inflammasome mechanisms can be steroid resistant and the resultant interleukin-1-beta production is driven by inflammasome activation, which drives autocrine loop activation in macrophage and other cells, in which NLRP3 activation is taking place, reinforce the inflammasome assembly sequence. Non-steroidal treatments targeting inflammasome activation, specifically the IL-1R antagonist Anakinra, have been shown to block lipopolysaccharide induced, which is bacterial cell wall debris, influx of neutrophils into healthy subjects. So from, from a non-science perspective, stress chemistry should be addressed in all patients prior to getting sick and during illness because it's proven useful to decrease inflammation. So from a patient perspective, patient ability and personal preferences are really important in guiding the appropriate choices for stress reduction, whether these techniques are mindfulness-based exercise, relaxing music, creative pursuits, biofeedback, art therapy, anything that you can think of, these are valid adjunctive therapies from a whole person perspective to reduce disease risk. When we look at glycemic control or you know how the blood sugar spikes in the blood, this is critical to controlling baseline inflammation. As followers of this newsletter podcast series understand, fructose and glucose excesses are very, very dangerous to the human system, to the human metabolism, to human inflammation, to human uh, immune solvency. So preventing insulin resistance, preventing impaired glucose tolerance are critical to reducing inflammation and may be a contributing factor which is why diabetics are such higher risk for severe COVID disease. And it appears that is true. Most of the work achieving optimal glycemic control involves subtracting foods from the diet that contribute to increased postprandial glycemic response or elevated blood sugar levels. This avoids adding to the burden of polypharmacy involved in impl implementing over the tactics. You know, again, if you take control of your disease upfront before getting sick, you're on less drugs with less risk. That's the key. To me, if you're on a lot of drugs to maintain 
the sense of metabolic self, that is a problem. That means you're not doing the upstream work to need less medicine downstream. While there is individual variation of what foods cause high, higher glycemic spikes or higher blood sugar spikes in specific individuals, the general advice of reducing foods that have a high glycemic load, and you can look a high glycemic load up online. There's a bunch of websites that talk about that. This is a good place to start. Food combining in order to reduce glycemic burden should be considered by monitoring blood sugars using continuous glucose monitors or intermittent glucose monitors or intermittent glucose testers. One can get a good sense of what types of food increase your personal prosprandial glucose glycemic response. These are important things to start paying attention to feed forward for the future. Again, COVID is going to be with us probably for the end of time. So, Somewhere along the way, you're going to put yourself in front of this virus in a not ideal state if you're not preparing for that day, i.e. you're not taking better care of your long-term health. Number four, other dietary factors, right? So let's look at other places. So what else is contributing to this problem of diet-induced inflammation? So high-quality nutrient-dense foods tend to be the best. So Spend your time eating whole plant-based foods, right? Rich in polyphenols and healthy fats, uh, very fruits, vegetable forward with lots of colors. That's a foundational support to give the antioxidants and plant-based phytonutrients that decrease inflammation overall by chemical reactions in the body from the plant to us. They also happen to feed our microbiome, which is great. We'll get to that next. Reducing or eliminating inflammation, promoting foods is also important. So, Look at your diet, get rid of the highly processed and chemical-based trans fat, oxidized fat, bad sugar fat foods, and look for a healthy, whole food, highly colored, highly fiber-based diet. This is inherently anti-inflammatory. Number five, work towards microbiome balance in the GI and the lungs. So both the GI and the lung tracts have normal microbiomes at baseline, at birth, in general. I could get nuances of that. But this complex relationship between the bacteria of the lung and the GI tract and us has massive bidirectional influences on our immune system. This has been reviewed in many articles and in this newsletter. But dysregulation of the balance of the GI microbiome, the bacteria, has been shown as a source of systemic inflammation. Look at Lesio Fasano's work with MIS in kids. It's a precursor, pre-risk factor. Intestinal metabolism of dietary fibers is the key to increasing biodiversity of microbes in the gut, which produce more short-chain fatty acids, which feed us, specifically propionate, which has been shown to enhance the activation of macrophages and dendritic cells seeding the lungs, which helps kill viruses. The dendritic cells have increased phagocytic capacity, which means swallowing capacity of pathogens, and decreased capacity to, do, to induce a Th polar switch towards type 2, which is not what we want. Exacerbations of chronic lung diseases have been proposed to be episodes of lung microbial dysbiosis. So if your lungs are getting inflamed, they, you may have actually abnormal bacteria. We know this is true for cystic fibrosis. The status of the lung microbiome may be especially important in situations requiring use of ventilators, as the depletion of lung microbiota by broad-spectrum antibiotics prior to high tidal volume ventilation was shown to render mice in, mouse, in, in models more susceptible to, ventilating, to developing ventilator-induced lung injury. So if we think about this from a different perspective, you know, antibiotic use indiscriminately 
may be a major risk factor and probably is for chronic lung disease in certain subsets of humans and could be a massive upstream risk for developing inflammation in the lungs and long-term problems, especially ventilator-associated disease. So avoiding antibiotics is really important. Number six, exercise. Physical activity has long been known to be a critical to be critical for proper functioning of all physiologic systems, whether they're metabolic, immunologic, mental, neurologic, all of the above. However, to decrease inflammation, the right intensity is critical with moderate levels effective at lowering inflammatory markers, while intense exercise does not. So IL-6 drives significant inflammatory pathology in COVID-19, as discussed in this, uh, this article that Dr. Yannick wrote. But skeletal muscle has been shown to produce and release significant levels of IL-6 after prolonged exercise. So caution may be here to not over-exercise, over-train. As Dr. Uh, uh, Munoz stated, Overtraining can have just as much downstream risk as, as not training. So be careful on that front. Number seven, so support your body with minerals and vitamins that have immunologic roles, right? So zinc, very important. Vitamin D, vitamin A, very important. Fiber, so probiotic uh, supplements are very useful. You know, selenium has some effect on, on, on glucose metabolism, which has an effect on immunology. So, you know, honestly, almost all minerals and nutrients have some effect, but the big, big, big players in my mind are zinc, vitamin C, vitamin A, vitamin D, maybe iron. Okay. So that's some of the news to use. I'm going to get into a deeper dive into COVID pathophysiology next week. So stay tuned. It's going to be pretty intense, lots of science, but it's probably going to be worth your time to listen to that one as well. I'm going to repeat some of this information at the end of that one, but I wanted to add it here at the end of Dr. Munoz's interview because there is some more news to use here that we need to, to take away in preparation for the next fundamental disease of infectious etiology that comes our way. And, and to me, as we stated in the podcasts, you know, Dr. Munoz put very clearly the critical play in this game is maintaining mental health, right? Taking care of your stress, however that looks to you. Taking care of your upstream risks of hyperglycemia and metabolic syndrome by reducing your intake of fructose and glucose as refined carbohydrates, whether it's sugared beverages or flour-based foods. Those are all detrimental to your immune health. Make sure you're sleeping adequately, eight hours a night, right? As I stated, you know, I used to say, you know, I'll sleep when I'm dead. That's really not good. You know, I had to change my mindset once I learned all the science behind sleep. You know, movement, good quality exercise daily, not over-exercising, but certainly not under-exercising. So, Think of all these things as your day-to-day repertoire of health. How do I take care of myself so I don't end up sick? Or worse, dead. So I'm going to leave you with that statement and that sort of where we're at with this situation as far as it is moving forward with COVID-19 or whatever next disease comes our way. And I know it was a long one. I hope you stuck with it and I hope you really gleaned some quality information there. As always, I I love sharing with you guys. I appreciate the time you spend listening. It is a joy. Have a great day. Hug those kids. The disclaimer, the information provided in this podcast is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice and treatment provided by your physician or other healthcare professional and is not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue. 
and does not constitute the formation of a provider-patient relationship. Thanks.